Welcome to the Awaken Podcast. At Awaken Church, we are passionate about wrestling with and being unraveled by the Christian scriptures. Ideally, we do this together around the table in the neighborhood of Bonas. As we see it, Jesus has invited all of us to encounter Him in a diverse community and participate with Him in a mission of loving our neighbors. Hi, everybody. I'm Amy. Most of you know me at least a little bit, but I thought I'd give a little intro of who I am. Um, I used to speak here once in a while, but like pre-COVID. So for like the majority of church right now, that means you've never seen me do this. <laughs> so um, yeah, just thought I'd let you know kind of who I am. So I grew up in a small town called Tofield, uh, up closer to Edmonton, and uh, grew up going to a Mennonite church. So my family was Russian Mennonite. And uh, my parents at some point were also introduced to the Vineyard Church. And so they went to a, a Vineyard Bible study in Edmonton. So I had like two kind of different influences, which I didn't realize was strange <laughs> until I was like an adult because it was just my childhood, right? Um, so like um, positive and negative things about both, but uh, looking kind of maybe at the positive side, Anabaptist Mennonite thing was more like fellowship of all believers, social justice, um, kind of that bent. And then uh, the vineyard aspect provided this mix of like worship music, awareness of the spirit, um, an emphasis, perhaps overemphasis on spiritual warfare. Um, and like I had a lot of terrifying stories as a kid of like demons coming to kids disguised as angels. And like I was sure. I needed to be prepared for this to happen as a kid. So when Nikayla's talking about Baptist, not talking about like Holy Spirit and and stuff, like I don't actually relate to that. Um, I've been a member at Awaken for more than 10 years, but I don't really feel Baptist specifically. And um, the Holy Spirit was presented to me as like an important part of the Trinity, an important part of kind of the spiritual life from a young age. So... After I graduated from school, I went to Columbia Bible College in Abbotsford and did a two-year diploma in uh, worship arts, moved around a bit, uh, did various things, came back to Calgary to finish my degree. I thought I'd be here for a couple years to kind of work on my school and never left. Um, had my career started. I worked as an ESL instructor for 11 years, married Jeremy, had Harriet, uh, really settled into this church. Um, yeah, currently I am a worship leader and elder here at Awaken, and I'm here to speak to you today about our series on the Holy Spirit. Um, so, the Holy Spirit brings down the mighty. Uh, let's uh, go to the next slide for our scripture, please. This is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Um, let me pray. God, I ask that... Um, your voice will be heard today, that you would um, just give me peace in what I'm saying, and uh, that you would be here with us today. Amen. 
So uh, the title of today's sermon, as I said, is The Holy Spirit Brings Down the Mighty. Uh, and if we're looking at the Old Testament, there are, oh, back up a slide if you can't fix. Um, if we're looking at the Old Testament, there are endless stories of battles, cities falling, walls falling, kings falling, gruesome ends. Um, and so today we will focus in on uh, that term from verse 20, the day of the Lord. Uh, here it's great and glorious. Other translations go great and wonderful, great and awesome, great and fearful. Uh, there are various translations. I was going to do a word study and I started and it it didn't add much. It was just sort of like it can mean any of the things. So um, we're not going to go the word study route today, but um, yeah, the day of the Lord, which in any sense will be noteworthy. Um, next slide. If you hear nothing else from the sermon, uh, this quote, I think, is a good one to remember. The day of the Lord is about moments in history when God confronts collective human evil, and it's always associated with some act of liberation for the people who suffer under that evil society or empire, the oppressed people. Um, and if the sermon doesn't make much sense, you can go to the Bible Project, and they have this beautiful like six-minute video that's like really lovely. I thought about showing it, but then it steals a lot of what I'm going to say. So I was like, let's not do that. Um, so we're going to start at the beginning. Um, Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. There is this perfect close relationship between God and each other and creation. So we've got this beautiful shalom in the garden. God has given them everything that they need and more, um, but... Uh, different interpretations on why things happen, but perhaps they don't trust God. They choose an act of rebellion, which results in shame of their bodies, which is like a separation between Adam and Eve with each other, but also kind of with yourself. Um, there is hiding from and therefore separation from God and banishment from Eden, which is a separation from nature. So shalom is broken at the end of that section of the story. Next scene, we have intense jealousy. Cain and Abel, God warning Abel about, like, be careful, sin is right at your door. Uh, and murder between Cain and Abel, murder of the innocent. And then we have, so it's just like, kind of things are getting worse and worse and worse, a spiral of violence. Um, Cain starts to build the city. Lamech takes Cain as his role model, commits murder, and is like, I can kill people, Cain killed people, I'm going to do the same, and God will protect me just like he, kill, he protected Cain. Um, and so there's just this yeah, widening circle of negative influence. Um, next slide. If we jump ahead to Genesis 11, uh, the people have become arrogant, intelligent, full of themselves, and they're like, we can make bricks now. Let's build a giant tower and a city so that we will be famous, known by everyone. We're all going to work together and we're going to be the greatest. Um, just like this great arrogance and rebellion against God. And God is like, no. And he scatters the people um, and gives them different languages so they can't kind of join together to do something like this again. And so, of course, the story of the Tower of Babel, placing the story right from Genesis in ancient Babylon, and so there's this first organized group rebellion foreshadowing the role of Babylon, the Babylonian Empire in world history and um, especially that of Israel in the biblical context. So Babylon becomes this archetype 
along with Egypt, of God bringing down the mighty. And it starts right in the first book of the Bible and extends to the very last, right, to Revelation. Um, Babylon becomes the very epitome of human evil in Scripture. Um, if an empire doesn't submit itself to God's rule and liberate the oppressed, God orchestrates events to bring about its downfall and replace it with his own kingdom or another kingdom. Um, there are a total of 125 biblical references that associate Babylon with a worldly system of rebellion against God. So it is this kind of thread that runs through a lot of them in the prophets. Um, so uh, next slide. If we work through the chronology of some of these empires falling, Egypt is kind of an important one, significant one in the story of God's people. Egypt rises, becomes the superpower of oppression against the weak. The Israelites are enslaved away from their land, away from their God, away from their religious practices, ancestry. Um, and they are treated poorly, to put it very simply. Um, Exodus 3, verses 7 and 8 says, The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I am concerned about their suffering. So I've come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians and bring them up out of that land into a good and spacious land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And God follows through and brings the people out with great signs and wonders that affect the Egyptians in terms of crops, livestock, children, their army. Um, and so God brings the Israelites out, and there's also um, kind of the, the downfall of the Egyptian uh, Empire. After Egypt, the conquering power was then Assyria, if we go to the next slide. And Assyria is mentioned in the Bible, various places, but like I found with my Sunday school history, um, you hear names of groups of people, but you don't know anything about them. I found it rather bland, and it was always like just sort of lists. There were the Assyrians, the Babylonians, they all just sort of blend together, and it didn't mean anything. Like... Um, yeah, but the Assyrians were like really, really awful. Um, and when we read the book of Jonah and he's like, no, God, I'm not going to Nineveh. It's often like, oh, he's this prideful, stupid man who won't do what God says. But, um, according to the historian Simon Anglum, the Assyrians created the world's first great army and the world's first great empire. And this was held together by two factors, their superior abilities in siege warfare and their reliance on sheer unadulterated terror. So Nineveh was one of the capitals of Assyria, I believe. And um, they were known for horrible deaths, torture, dismemberment, hanging their enemies' body parts around the city walls, um, like really gruesome deaths, torture, and like physical displays of that for everyone to see. Um, and so for Jonah to be like, no, God, I don't think so. Um, partly he probably does want them to be punished because they're an awful, awful people, but he's probably also afraid because they were a terrifying people. Um, and apparently, yeah, they would lay siege to cities and just use psychological terror in warfare for the first time, which I didn't get a lot of details about that, but I'm okay with that too. Um, so prophets like Habakkuk see the terror of Assyria and he's like, what the heck, God? Like, how much longer? How long do we have to just like wait for this to end? Like, isn't something going to happen? Step in. And God's like, oh, don't worry. I'm raising up the Babylonians. Um, and it's just like 
this other great terrible empire is going to come in and it probably wasn't quite the the response that that was looked for um and yet cue the babylonians so king nebuchadnezzar leads in the babylonians they plunder jerusalem destroy the temple carry off the captives we had enslavement and mistreatment under egyptian rule and we have exile and mourning under babylonian rule but Isaiah speaks God's word and clearly prophesies about Babylon's fall. Isaiah 13 says, See, the day of the Lord is coming, a cruel day with wrath and fierce anger to make the land desolate and destroy the sinners within it. See, I will stir up against them the Medes who do not care for silver and have no delight in gold. Their bows will strike down the young men. They will have no mercy on infants, nor will they look with compassion on children. Babylon, the jewel of kingdoms, the pride and glory of the Babylonians will be overthrown by God like Sodom and Gomorrah. And there's actually a lot of history available about the fall of Babylon, which I found somewhat interesting. I don't have all the details in my memory, um, but essentially Nebuchadnezzar seems like he was somewhat tactically brilliant like he built this city that was very well fortified um, the only way in really was this like aqueduct and um, it was really really hard to um, get in there like the walls of the city were apparently reportedly like over 300 feet high and it was just like very a very strong city um, but after King Nebuchadnezzar died there was like a series of rulers who were less adequate and they kind of slacked off. The Medes and Persians came in, cut off the water supply, and used the aqueduct as like a tunnel into the city and came in and like conquered within a day. So that was the fall of Babylon. And so Babylon felt the hands of the media Persians. This power was overcome by the Grecians who fall to the Romans who are still in power when, when Jesus comes. The day of the Lord is coming. Oh, I had music, but it didn't come. That's okay. Okay, so there's a reggae song, Down Presser Man, and it's about the day of the Lord, and anyways, it's like a warning against the, the evil people, and like, it's going to be a bad, it's going to be a sad day for you, man. Um, so that was, it was, there was supposed to be music. Uh, when we think of the day of the Lord, I think, um, I don't want to speak for everyone, but I know for my Again, church background, small town, maybe that makes a difference. I don't know. Sunday school teachers kind of taught what they knew or felt was right. And it generally was the day of the Lord was this future event. This was when Jesus is going to come back. Book of Revelation is going to happen, essentially. Um, and so we're thinking about future event, final judgment, punish of God against the wicked. And it might look kind of like this. I love you. Okay. Um, and that's kind of how it can feel when we think about God being like, yes, this group, bring your violence, this group, bring your violence. Um, and yet the phrase is used throughout the Bible and it is one of those already, but not yet events. Uh, this was kind of a key phrase like 10 or 15 years ago in the church of like, the kingdom of God is already, but not yet. And the day of the Lord is already, but not yet as well. So each of the bringing down of the mighty situations is a like small D day of the Lord. Chatting with Jeremy, he described it kind of as mountains where there's a day of the Lord. And then behind it, there's another one that comes. And behind that, there's another one that comes. And 
you kind of think maybe this is it and then nope there's another one um in my reading it described as like foothills leading up to the grand mountain of the the final day of the lord and so there is yeah we're waiting for that final day when all evil will be conquered the innocent will be rescued and the righteous will be vindicated the chapter from Isaiah, Isaiah 13, that I was reading from starts with, see the day of the Lord is coming. And so we have this information that is very specifically about the fall of Babylon. The Medes are coming. Like it's a very clear prophecy about their downfall. And yet it's also about the final day of the Lord when all evil will be held to account. And so this was very hopeful for Israel, especially when they were exiled and oppressed. And they originally interpreted this as the day when God would smite their enemies, raise them up. They would be God's holy people, um, kind of exalted above the nations. Um, and yet at some point, uh, Walter Brueggemann says that Israel rejects the Mosaic Covenant and they themselves become a Babylon. And so the day of the Lord is actually a warning against them as well. Israel, this country that was supposed to be a radically subversive structure that embraces jubilee forgiveness like we talked about, radical hospitality, uh, they have instead become the new Babylon, oppressing their own people and, and strangers. And the day of the Lord is not just for their liberation, but it's also against their nation and their, and their oppressive power structures as well. They have become oppressors rather than a beacon for the nation, uh, nations. And in the book of Joel, where our Acts scripture comes from, before our specific scripture, we have warnings to Israel. Blow the trumpet in Zion, sound the alarm on my holy hill. Let all who live in the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. There's a warning against them to like be careful. This day is going to come, and it's it's going to be darkness and gloom and clouds and blackness. It's not just exaltation for you. All through the Old Testament, specifically, there there's some mentions in the New Testament as well. But I'm going to jump to the book of Revelation because that Babylon theme is very much there as well. The fall of Babylon is referencing a familiar event of the past. So it's actually describing the upcoming fall of Rome, which will be like the fall of Babylon. Um, but it's also predicting the final day of the Lord. And so um, I was reading how the biblical writers viewed history very different from how we do. So instead of just saying there was an event and then another event, and there's like this linear series of, of happenings that are completed, they were looking for very clear acts of God. And an act of God was like set in stone and then it would recur. And it became something that you would look to and expect kind of to happen again. And so all of these little D days of the Lord are working together to make up kind of the, the grand day of the Lord. And so when we're reading the Bible, we're like, future day of the Lord, and that's it. But biblical authors would have said, well, yeah, future, but also past, and it's probably happening right now, and it's all like, it's all interwoven. So their understanding of events would overlap, but there also wasn't necessarily an understanding that the one wasn't also the other one. The day of the Lord is when the entire world order will be turned upside down. And so if you have a conquering nation and they are removed, your world is turned upside down. And you're like, is this the final one? Is it not? Um, so you, you don't know what the future holds. There's these huge upheavals all through history, which are each a day of the Lord. Jesus' death and resurrection and defeat of death is sometimes seen as a part of the final day of the Lord as well, in very much an already but not yet sense as well. Uh, Jesus taught his followers how to live in a new kingdom that was at hand, but not yet in full, a new world order of sorts. 
turn the other cheek. The last shall be first. Love your enemies. It upsets everything. It takes away entitlement. You are asked to like voluntarily give up privilege to not claim your rights to work to lift up those below you in the social order rather than to climb to the top for yourself or even for the good of your nation. Allegiance to God's kingdom was far above and beyond allegiance to any earthly nation or system. Also, of course, Jesus overcame death and violence, tyrannical and oppressive rulers, if there ever were, through his own death and resurrection. The Old Testament system was usually punishment through scarcity. You take things away. You take things away, you take things away, and people suffer. But Jesus rejects punishment through scarcity. Everything was taken from him. His life, his dignity, everything. And yet, he didn't shy away from that. He didn't suffer from that. He didn't actually, like, he overcame all of it. He takes it on himself to defeat scarcity and punishment themselves, and he brings in a new order where the rush of the spirit that we talked about at the beginning of the series is for everyone. It's for all flesh. And so instead of his punishment resulting in his diminishment, it resulted in a blessing for all people. They tried to punish through scarcity, but it resulted in a blessing of abundance. So a true preview of the final day of the Lord, where unjust systems are thwarted and turned on their heads. But as we know, Jesus then left. Rome was still in power. Enslaved people are still enslaved. Oppressed people are still oppressed. Uh, we know that death and violence are still very real and present part of our reality. And as in any oppressive rule, it affects some people to a much greater extent than others. And so we too long for the ultimate day of the Lord. Because this day isn't truly about destruction. It's not just about bringing down the mighty and then God just like leaves everything in shambles. If we read on, even in the book of Joel, where the text is from, uh, Joel 3 says, In those days and at that time when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather the nations and bring them down. Um, I will put them on trial for what they did to my inheritance, my people Israel, because they scattered my people among the nations and divided up my land. They list kind of these awful things. They cast lots for my people. They traded boys for prostitutes and sold girls for wine to drink. I'm going to rouse the people of Judah and Jerusalem out of the places to which you sold them, and I will return on your own heads what you have done. The Lord will roar from Zion and thunder from Jerusalem. The earth and heavens will tremble, but the Lord will be a refuge for his people, a stronghold for the people of Israel. Shall I leave their innocent blood unavenged? No, I will not. The Lord dwells in Zion. God is listening to the cries of the defenseless, the weak, the hungry, the orphan, the downtrodden. If we open any newspaper today... Uh, the headlines show us the state of our world, um, a part of it in any case. Um, but there will be restoration. There will be justice for those people who are pressed down, um, those whose life has been just felt like one curse after another will be showered in blessings, and it will be deep and meaningful, not just hashtag blessed. God brings down the mighty to raise up the lowly, and the final day of the Lord is when the last shall be first and the first shall be last. Uh, next slide. I have three little things left. One is hope. Um, recognizing that things are not as they should be is an act of hope and resistance. God listens to the voices of the lowly and oppressed, and we need to as well, um, and believe that, that it can and will be better through God. Looking at ourselves, there's a personal aspect here. Come out of her, my people. That is the heart of the book of Revelation. Come out of Babylon. 
The book is about Babylon and the new Jerusalem and this new kingdom of God. And so if we're reading scripture about the future day of the Lord, uh, what choices do we need to make between Jesus' upside-down kingdom and the kingdom of the world where we're living? How do we do that? What does our own participation in Jesus' new creation look like in terms of who we are, our beliefs about the future, and our actions? Um, in Revelation 5, the lion that is expected to be on the throne is actually a slain lamb. The victor looks very different from what we are set up to, to see as kind of the winner, very different from what our society would be like, yes, that's what I want to follow. And perhaps the day of the Lord will look strikingly different from what we actually have come to expect. And so... We need humility as we approach topics like this. We also need imagination. Um, we need to allow questions and dialogue. We need to pr uh, foster a prophetic imagination inspired by the Holy Spirit. Do we have eyes to see? How do we have bigger imaginations? What do we do? How do we live in Babylon as we wait the next day of the Lord? To put it another way, Henry Nouwen said, if the spiritual life is not simply a way of being, but also a way of becoming, what then is the nature of this becoming? Finally, we also look at the world. We can be a part of breaking systems and living out a different reality together. It can be easy, I think, for people to put their hope in politics, to say, we didn't, oh, I'm crushed, we didn't, we didn't um, elect the right leader. And I feel that way <laughs> often. Um, but our hope is not in politics. Our hope is not in the worldly systems. And that's, but that doesn't mean that we don't do anything. And that's, I think, one of the balances that I see my parents, my in-laws, um, my siblings, my friends, lots of people kind of dealing with is like, do I really devote my time to politics? Do I devote my time to um, social justice issues? Do I devote my time to sitting at home and praying really hard? There's different views on kind of what is the Christian response um, or like what God is calling us to. The church at times does uphold the values of Babylon over the values of the kingdom of God in ways that we perhaps don't even notice. Um, and so listening to a variety of voices is, is very important for this as well. I've got a quote by Sung Chan Ra from the book Prophetic Lament. He says, Have we behaved inappropriately as a church endowed with great influence? Have we sinned against God in squandering our many blessings? Instead of investing in the kingdom of God on a global scale, have we invested in the fallen systems of Western culture and her political and economic systems? Are we so invested in the Western cultural captivity of the church that we are unable to accept God's right judgment on the broken systems of oppression. The Western church elevates values of Western culture even at the expense of biblical values. Western culture values and how we live out Christian faith in Canada, it was United States, but I switched it, are presented as theologically normative and oppress voices from outside the Western context. And so if you listen to the voices of immigrants and the voices of Christians from other nations, their, their words, their uh, what they feel God is telling them is often quite different from what we see here in the West. Um, and so perhaps one of the first acts of the church, and that includes us, uh, might be to 
encourage confession between you and God, but also between you and others in the church or even us corporately as a church. Um, Nikayla was once talking to me about how beautiful it would be if Awaken were a place where people could come and it was a regular practice for us to be confessing to each other, um, to openly share our struggles and failings, to and when doing that, to find grace and mercy and reconciliation and also accountability as needed. Um, that's a very countercultural idea where we're expected to, and not just countercultural, but counterchurch or counter-Western church, maybe I should say in many ways. Confession was very much thrown out as this sort of like evil Catholic thing, I think. And so um, something to think about. Oshita Moore is another voice that has spoken into my life. And she wrote the book, Dear White Peacemakers. She also has a, is part of a group, We Embrace Welcome. It's on Instagram and it's wonderful. And it has lots of like prayers and liturgies and, and ways to actively fight racism and, and kind of be a, a presence in your neighborhood. Anyway, she writes that the primary act of fighting injustice is recognizing ours and others' belovedness, how um, very often we start by like shaming ourselves and saying like, oh, I'm, I'm uh, first and foremost, I'm a racist. And she's like, that's not actually first and foremost who you are. First and foremost, you are beloved by God. And if we start with shame, we're going to burn out and we're not going to continue and we're not going to act out of love if that's not where, where our motivation is or where our, our hope is. And she wrote that instead of beating ourselves up and working ourselves to exhaustion in our desire to overcome racism or systems of oppression, the only thing you should be focused on is owning your belovedness, proclaiming my belovedness, meaning herself as the author and BIPOC individuals, um, and working to become the beloved community. White peacemaker, own your belovedness so that you can proclaim mine. Belovedness is like a flowing river of renewal and justice. It allows us to challenge systems and have difficult conversations. It moves us from individualism into community. Our Jesus, who gasped for his last breath, never lost sight of the mission to bring us back to God's dream of shalom, loved fully by the Father so that we can love his creation fearlessly. These are the hallmarks of the kingdom of God. Love God, love self, love others, love the world. Therefore, this is the way of the beloved community. Claim your belovedness. Love God, love self. Then proclaim it. Love others and love the world. So I have just a picture for the final slide, and I'm going to read um, a prayer by Kate Bowler before Nikayla comes up to do communion. Oh God, I am done with broken systems that break the very people they are meant to serve. Harness this anger. Channel it into worthy action and show me what is mine to fix and what boundaries to patrol to keep goodness in and evil out. Blessed are we who are appalled that brute ignorance can so easily dominate over decency, honesty, and integrity. Blessed are we who choose not to look away from systems that dehumanize, deceive, defame, and distort. We who recognize that thoughts and prayers are not enough. We who stand with truth over expediency, principle over politics, community over competition. O oh God, how blessed are we who cry out to you. Empower us to see and name what is broken, what is ours to restore. Guide us to find coherent and beautiful alternatives that foster life, hope, and peace. Help us use our gifts with one another in unity. 
Blessed are we who choose to live in anticipation, our eyes scanning the horizon for signs of your kingdom. Heaven come down as we wait in hope and act with courage.